0: So the book of James, part one, God's hard-to-believe plan for making your life perfect. James 1, 1 to 4, we already read this, I'll read it quickly, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, and immediately were made to link up in our thinking the church with the nation Israel. The idea that James wants us to grasp, well, the New Testament wants us to grasp, is that God no longer has two peoples. He doesn't deal with Israel and deal with the church. These people, these Christians, were from the twelve tribes of Israel. God has one people. Paul is emphatic. One people, Paul says. Not two, he says, but one. There's not Israel and the church, there's... The church, the believing community of which believing Israel is a part. Servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. By the way, I've said this in my class, but maybe just mention it quickly here, just in case you're here and you're visiting and you think, brothers, that's, that's a little bit uh, chauvinistic. And I know that we use a translation that consistently will translate the Greek brothers into brothers and doesn't just do persons like a lot of the new translations will. Doesn't it mean persons? Yes, it does. Well, then why not use one of those translations? Because I think a translation should be a translation. Don't start interpreting. Leave it as a translation and then explain in that culture what that what that meant. I don't want somebody messing with the translation. I just want what it actually says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we come to your word. Probably not one of us in this room can picture himself or herself as perfect, lacking absolutely nothing. And so somehow there's a depth of work you want to do in our lives with this mingling of the truth of your word and the circumstances we face. And so come, Holy Spirit, and give us humble, teachable hearts. Protect us from error. May Christ be glorified in your word, your word honored in your name i pray amen james never uses his last name in this letter Uh, most scholars feel that the author is james the brother of jesus also sometimes called james the just circumstances seem to rule out the two other james that are mentioned in the new testament james the son of zebedee that's the brother of john Uh, He was executed by Herod around 41 AD. Most people feel before the letter of James was written. That rules him out. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, is almost totally unknown in terms of very much New Testament detail. Now, that in itself doesn't discount him, except... It's unlikely that such an obscure individual could send a letter to Christians of the dispersion to all sorts of churches without even identifying himself with a last name. Probably James, the brother of Jesus. And the interesting point about that is this James wasn't even a believer during Jesus' lifetime as far as we know. John 7, 2-5 says... Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. The conversion of all those brothers isn't listed in the New Testament. But from what we can gather, James was converted probably after Jesus' resurrection. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, It means he didn't want to believe Jesus' message just because he was a brother. He He was hard to convince. Only the compelling evidence of the resurrection of Jesus changed his mind and his heart. So he remained in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen... And his influence and authority in the young church is evidenced by the fact that he's the one. He's the one who approved of Paul's apostolic ministry. That's in Galatians one nineteen. James presided over the apostolic council in Jerusalem. That's in Acts 15. And he became the leader of a, a large church in that city. So it could easily be argued that James was... Perhaps the most influential Christian leader of his day. He was well enough known that he could simply identify himself as James, verse 1. And people knew who this was. Like, share only with significance. Even his absence of official title tells us something important, and that leads us into the first point of this morning's message. Point number one, the only title that mattered to James reveals his practical devotion to Jesus Christ, and you can see it. James, servant, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something beautiful, the way James brings a magnificent sense of, of Christian identity and Christian calling with his very first sentence. He was well enough known to have many titles, probably at his disposal, apostle, pastor, leader, elder, nothing wrong with any of those titles, New Testament's full of their use. But, but James, James' title of choice, his brand is not so much a title as it is a reminder. James is first and foremost a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to me, it's striking. James only mentions Jesus twice in his whole letter. He mentions Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 2, verse 2. And... Both times, he uses the very same title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now think about that just for a second. James is Jesus' brother, half-brother, technically. They were of the same earthly family. My family never calls me Reverend Don Horbin. Or Pastor Don. Well, once in a while when I'm being mocked, I get called Pastor Don. <laughs> Pastor Don, turn off the TV, it's time for dinner. They know that's just a title. And they know they have no reason to use it. James seems to know that it's more than a matter of religious Propriety to call Jesus Lord. It's not just a title. It's, it's a reality that describes the way James lives in relation to his brother Jesus. James means for us to get a picture of his life. And what he's saying is, you can't understand James' life except as a servant. He means his choices, his actions, his ambitions will all seem incredibly impractical and ridiculous in this world except they're interpreted as the plan and will of his Lord rather than himself. Like you couldn't make sense of the decisions of the ambassador of a foreign country except you know something about the government and the nation that he represents. James is trying to tell us, you will not be able to make sense of my life except it's framed in terms of, I, I, I'm a servant of someone else. I'm a servant of someone else. Nothing matters more. I'm I'm increasingly convinced of this. Nothing matters more to potent spiritual life than simply making sure widely used words aren't allowed to leak their meaning with constant use. That widely used words aren't allowed to leak their meaning with constant use. Lord. It's a two-way term. It doesn't just describe the person with the title. It describes the relationship the person calling someone else Lord has to the one bearing the title. In other words, Lordship doesn't just refer to one side of the relationship. It refers to both sides of the relationship. Calling Jesus Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. How many times did we say it today? I mean, who could count? All the songs, all the things we said, Lord, 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 Lord. Dozens of times in your typical church service, Lord, 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 and boy, I get haunted by those words. I just don't ever, ever, ever want to have Jesus say to me, Don, why do you call me Lord, 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 and do not do the things that I Calling Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, that defines James' role. If Jesus is the Lord, then James is the servant. It can't logically be otherwise. And it's, it's just always refreshing. It doesn't happen all that often. It's always refreshing to meet someone who lives and eats and breathes and serves in a way that you just see so clearly the Lordship of Jesus Christ. James feels, by way of introduction, the opening sentence of his letter, and this is going to be read by a lot of churches. He feels the most important thing he can say about himself is, I'm a servant. You won't be able to understand my life at all unless you realize I'm just a servant. We need this reminder. There's frequently much more talk about what Jesus does for us, isn't there? Than what we do for him. He's the Lord. We're the servants. I don't doubt you love Jesus. Arguably, today's whole worship renewal is all about expressing our love to Father God through his Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the ultimate issue of lordship... The Lordship of Jesus isn't telling him you love him. Do that, for sure. Express it. But ask yourself, in what specific sense are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ? You know how it works with that title. I've I've used this illustration before. You, you, You talk to someone and they'll say, How's the family? How are the kids? Oh, they're serving the Lord. Serving the Lord means they're Christians, right? They're serving the Lord means, well, they're not in prison um, no, no, they're serving the Lord, and that—that's good. But, but you can't help but mean think that James means something different when he says a servant of the Lord. He doesn't just mean I'm a Christian. I believe certain things. I've kept my life out of trouble. He, he means—he means I, I use—I use my time and my talents and my energies to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I understand that that's what my resources are for in this world. I understand that's what my schedule should reflect. I understand it's my ambitions aren't the same as the person that sits at the next desk. I'm a servant. Servant. Two. James writes to people who know the meaning of personal struggle. It's in that first verse. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. To the twelve tribes. I've already mentioned that. But these people uh, were not on holidays. They weren't relaxing. They weren't sightseeing. They had been rather forcibly dispersed, that's what that means, scattered, driven out, running for their lives, leaving behind friends. You ever just move somewhere? Maybe you just get a promotion, but you know it means leaving your family and friends that you've made. How hard that is. Well, this is sort of like that, but it's different. They weren't choosing this. They're being driven out. Relationships, homes. Lands, security. Leaving it all behind. Because of intense persecution, they were forced to leave against their wills. Not really, though. They could have stayed. They could have stayed in relative comfort, but that would have implied they would have to deny the Lord, Jesus Christ. And servants can't do that. Not faithful ones. And again, because Jesus was Lord, their ultimate loyalty couldn't budge, it couldn't shift, no matter what the cost. They were on the run because, well, they're being called upon to prove by testing the actual lordship of Christ over their lives. You you only know who's Lord when you have to pay some price, when there's pushback. And, and then the real, the real title deed to your life has to manifest itself. Three. There's the call to rejoice in the middle of their trial. These are just the most annoying words in the Bible, aren't they? Count it all joy you meet trials, and you go. Oh, wait a minute! This and this. One of these things is not like the other. I know James is dealing specifically with religious persecution in that passage. I've talked about it, and I'm. I know most of us still. It's coming. We're. We're. we're it's right around the bend. But most of us still don't have that much experience of such persecution. The the primary danger to the North American church so far is still more seduction than persecution. But our text does justify opening up the envelope just a little bit because James says he's talking about encountering trials of various kinds. So James writes as a pastor, and he's concerned that these Christians continue, continue to move on into maturity, even in the middle of being driven out, scattered, all the junk that they're facing, the inconvenience, where do you worship, with whom, how do you find them? Even in the middle of all this, he doesn't want these people to be beaten. He doesn't want them to get lost, sidetracked somewhere, stumble along the way. And, And so here's the thrust of these next few words. If these saints are going to continue on to maturity, they will have to maintain a very distinct and different attitude toward the potential stumbling blocks that they're going to face. It's it's a command. It's a command. It's to count. Reckon is a word that's used in the old King James. Almost mathematical terms. He's talking about how these people, going through what they're going through, when you get a minute and you sit down and you think about it, how these people will figure their way through their circumstances. You have to do that. How will you figure your way through this? What's the mental process? And that alone tells us much about what James means. He's he's not talking about something, apparently, that God is going to do for them. Not yet. He's not even talking yet about something God is going to do in them. Not initially. We'll get there. He's talking about something they will have to do. They're, they're not going to feel like doing this. Peter talks about the same thing. First 1 Peter 1, 1.6. He says, In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved. So rejoice. See it in the first part. And then grieved. Though now for a little while, if necessary. I find those words fascinating. You've been grieved by various trials. So Peter writes to these people who are genuinely grieved. And Peter, like James, he puts these two things together that really don't seem to mix. He's not talking about rejoicing And trials in sequence, as though first you rejoice and then trials come and you suffer. He's talking about rejoicing and being grieved at the same time, not not one after the other. So he means both the trial and the joy must be held together. And then Peter quite strangely says that this process isn't random, but it's necessary. What is that all about? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. And so I read that, and my brain just says, Necessary for what? Necessary to whom? What strange words! And that's the next point that James is going to unpack. This necessary bit. Necessary for what? Necessary to whom? Point number four. Move on to the third verse. For you know that the testing of your faith, this is really the only word we need, produces steadfastness. in these words for you know James tells us something very important about these trials which Peter says are so necessary and James is going to say that trials don't do anything good in my life automatically nothing good they stink You and I have both seen people that just grow sour. Happens all the time. Bitter, quit the church, get angry, discouraged. In fact, that seems to be, for people like me, people like us, that seems to be the default process of self-ruled people rather than servants of Jesus Christ. So James calls us to know something. For you know. He says, I'm calling you, you you, you believers who are scattered. You, you don't know which way is up. Everything is in, is in panic mode. Uh, you don't know where you're going to settle. You don't know how this is all going to pan out. I'm calling on you to constantly hold something in your mind. In other words, James says you Christians who are suffering this trial, don't just let your thoughts happen. That's it. Don't just let your thoughts come to you. Process them. And you must hold this truth in your mind quite firmly because, well, what trials do is they come and they tend to shake and knock this truth out of your mind. What truth? Why are these things, Peter says, necessary? James says, productive. James says you have to focus on the result of the trials. Here's the hard part. You you, you have to focus on the result of the trials before you get the result of your trials. In other words, you have to focus on the result of the trial while you're still in the middle of it. Don't see your trials as isolated events. See them more as a process leading to a result. I know that's easy to talk about. You must look at trials as part of the process. So so here's the teaching. Various kinds of trials, verse 2, will come. And that word trials is a pretty inclusive word in the Greek, referring to both external pain and persecution and inward temptation. To compromise, that can be the result from those kinds of situations. And in all of those situations, my success in facing the things that come my way and the fruit of these unavoidable trials, well, it depends on a set of the mind. Pick the last time you fell badly into sin. And failure. I don't know what it might have been. And ask yourself how different the result might have been if right in the middle of the temptation you had a strong sense that God wanted to use that very situation to give you more maturity, more grace, more strength, more completeness than you have ever had before in your walk with him. If you process that. James says there's a chance to move ahead into steadfastness, completeness, perfection. Oh, how prone we are to look at all the temptations and trials of life as just occasions for falling and failing rather than occasions for perfecting and rising and completing something in our walk with Jesus. Five. It's the last point servers maybe you can go to the back if you want and get the uh, communion elements ready always let God's plan have its full effect in your life verse 4 and let steadfastness I like this have its full effect that you may be Look at these words. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. If I came up to you, and you didn't know we were doing James, so it's kind of unfair now, but if I came up to you and said, you know what, I have a surefire plan, and it will work 100% of the time. Uh, Come and see me. And I guarantee you that I can make your life absolutely perfect. Come and see me and I guarantee you that your Christian walk will lack absolutely nothing. I know you've heard a lot of ideas. You've read a lot of books. This is surefire. This will work. It will make you perfect. It will make you complete. You will lack absolutely nothing in your relationship with Jesus. You'd say, well, (laughs) yeah, write a book. And then I said, here's the plan. Trials. You'd say, no, no, Pastor, Don, no, no. I, I want to be, like, perfect. That's what James is saying here. Let them have their full effect. This is the, the thinking of James in this wonderful text. Apparently, there are different choices we can make, Right? When we face trials, we we don't get to choose what trials come. We don't get to choose when they come. But we do choose whether or not they will make us perfect and complete and lacking nothing. That that we get a, a say in. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That's talking to our wills. Now let me show you a text that seems on the surface... To contradict that. Let me show you something Jesus said. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, endures for a while. Okay? And when tribulation, this is what James is writing about, persecution, that's what James is writing about, arise on account of the word immediately, falls away. So this is the opposite, right, of complete, lacking nothing. Now, Jesus and James are talking about the same thing. Apparently, there are options. The options are maturing or withering. Jesus describes people who are rootless when trials come. James describes people who remember something when trials come. Jesus talks about people who wither James talks about people who are perfected. The difference isn't in the persecution. The difference is in the remembering. If you forget the goal, you will wither when the trial comes. The goal, God's goal, according to James, is to make you perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If I told you that was God's tool... Trials, that's the tool for producing this. You'd probably say, I'm not interested. But God is interested. And he's God. He wants perfection in our lives more than he wants comfort. He wants perfection in our lives more than he wants wealth. He wants perfection in our lives more than he wants health. Here's how I want to wrap this up. I have a wonderful quote. Great Anglican preacher... Henry Melville, who was chaplain to the Queen in London, and he wrote something profound on this text from the Book of James in St. Paul's Cathedral on a Tuesday morning in 1853. I have a set of the sermons by Henry Melville. There is a set in the British Museum of Natural History. There's a set of these sermons in the vault at Wycliffe College down in Toronto, not on the shelves because it's just teetering and falling apart. You can't get it on the shelves. And there's a set in my library. And I'm not at liberty to tell you how I got them, but there was nothing unethical or anything I'm ashamed of when I stand before Jesus. I mean that. I didn't do anything bad. Listen, But he's a wonderful, wonderful preacher. Now, listen to these words. It's a long quote, so just kind of settle back, but don't fall asleep. The English is a little bit different, but surprisingly not bad for that that era. There cannot be needed a proof that it is both the design and tendency of affliction to cause us, as it were with regard to the present world, to feel that it is not our home and that we should fix our affections on things which are invisible but enduring. It will always be intensely difficult to persuade an irreligious man that the visible is not to be compared to the invisible. Just because he has not the faculties to enable him to appreciate the one, wherever the others have acquired for him any real or ascertainable existence. And here it is that affliction and trial comes in with a sort of compensating power. For by stamping vanity on all created good, proving by how slight a tenure we hold what we most prize, and by reminding us that when we must be taken from it, Affliction is fitted for the doing much towards destroying that superiority which attaches to temporal things, for showing them in their true light, notwithstanding they have gained for us a value, because addressing themselves so directly to the affections. So long as a man remains in the undisturbed, the undisturbed possession of wealth, and of whatsoever wealth commands, there will seem little force in the reasoning which tells him that there are better treasures which he should seek, compared with which what he has are utterly worthless and unsatisfying. But let wealth take to itself wings, let sickness incapacitate him for the enjoyment of what it can procure. And he will have had some palpable demonstration that earthly treasure, after all, is not sufficient for our necessities. And therefore, ought he to be, even if he be not in the more favorable position to apprehend the worth of unseen things, when wealth was made to flee away like a shadow, about to discern their real substance, we take this ground. That it is the tendency of affliction to dislodge the affections from temporal things and lead them toward the eternal. James takes the same approach as Melville, but in about ten words. That you may be perfect. These trials, persecutions, difficulties that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, without trials, there is nothing to distinguish between what I know and how I live. I mean, I, I think I'm patient, but that's just because I've had nothing to make me impatient lately. I think I'm forgiving, but that's only because nobody has hurt me really badly or cruelly. Recently. I think I'm willing to sacrifice everything to follow Jesus with joy, but that's only because no great sacrifices have been required of me recently. Always let God's plan have full effect. Always let God's plan have full effect in your life. only the christian life only the christian life is is big enough to draw our hearts toward eternity to set our love on jesus christ and make us his servants and to and to give us a valid reason other than just stoicism a valid reason for enduring in the face of trial so that it isn't just buck up be a man. It's, this ties in with your life in Christ. That God doesn't just use the nice stuff. That his will and his plan for your life is big enough that, that uh, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. What a wonderful redeemer that there's no element of our lives that get out of his hand and out of his care and that he hasn't planned for in his wisdom.